Prophecy, Doom, Gloom, and Tongues of Fire by Dan Rosato on this episode of the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan Miller, and I'm here with my co-host in the introductory segment. What's your name, sweetie? Caroline. Caroline, what is up in your world, girl? I'm helping people get their homes back. She's helping people get their homes back. And where do these people live? Dominica. Dominica. So some of you may know that there was a big storm that went through Dominica. Caroline, can you tell everybody what happened? Um, like it was a hurricane, and um, and it was very sad. It was very sad. So some of you may know, and some of you may not know, my wife Lauren and I lived in Dominica for two years. Back in the day, and this was when uh, we started my wife's med school journey, I was doing some mission work down there, and so the news that hit us here in the States was um, was pretty horrifying, it was very dramatic, and uh, needless to say, the island probably will never be the same for maybe even in our lifetime, but however, Dominicans are strong and they do persevere, and so one of the things in which we are doing, our family, is that Caroline has decided to draw some pictures, haven't you, Caroline? Uh-huh. And where are we going to take these pictures? To people. We're going to take them to people. We're going to go down to the farmer's market on Sunday, and we're going to bake some goodies, aren't we? Uh-huh. And we're going to sell some of your pictures, aren't we? Uh-huh. And so if you are around, well, by the time this actually this episode's released, we will have actually have already done that. People are going to be hearing this on Monday. We're going to do this on Sunday. Caroline's turning five on Friday, so right now, when you're listening to this, everything has already happened. Friday, Caroline turns five. Saturday, she's got a birthday party. Sunday, she has decided to make some pictures and do some baking with mom and dad, take these goodies down to the farmer's market and sell them. All the donations and proceeds are going to go to help out Dominican Relief. There's a, a massive need, a huge need in this little tiny country in the Caribbean. It's a beautiful third world country, but it has been completely devastated by Hurricane Maria. And so, if you would like to help, uh, there is uh, there are a lot of campaigns going on right now. You can email me, ryan at brewtheology.org, and I can send you some different links. Uh, if you follow me on Facebook, I've shared quite a bit. I've even I wrote a blog about it as well. Uh, so please, not ju- don't just pray for Dominica. In fact, we're talking about we got Puerto Rico. There's you know we've got Florida, and there's also. You know, there's Houston, so a lot of devastation's been going on. I know it's overwhelming, but if if you if you feel compelled in the bottom of your heart, uh, please give towards these causes. And the one that's very dear to ours, obviously, is Dominica, uh, this small, beautiful country in the Caribbean. And so, Dominicans, if you are listening right now, we love you. We're supporting you. Hashtag Dominica Strong. All right, everybody. Uh, if you uh, transitioning right now is kind of hard, uh, but we're actually going to be talking about prophecy tonight on this episode. My friends Erica, Ben, Dan, and Janelle join me in this conversation. Dan wrote the notes, and so without further ado, prophets, right, Dan? You can't live with them, and you can't live without them. Some of the most well-known religious figures, women and men, have been dubbed with the label: Jesus, Muhammad, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph Smith. You know, there's many. And within theistic religious circles, they ascribe the ability to speak on behalf of God, foretell incoming events, and shed light on what is hidden. But how, however, for today's discussion, what you're going to be hearing in this episode, Dan would like to emphasize that the prophet's ability to tell the truth and the call for justice in the face of power. 
So as one rooted in Christianity, Dan's going to be using these resources that he knows best to serve as a catalyst for further discussion. Now, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, prophets are presented as critics of the dominant religious and social order, insofar as they can be separated, but do so as an expression of faithfulness. When reading the Hebrew prophets, one can be left with the impression that prophets are deeply pessimistic and only call forth doom and gloom, but rather the prophet, deeply shaped and formed by the tradition they critique, can creatively call out injustice and envision the negative consequences of maintaining the status quo. Franciscan friar Richard Rohr, he puts it this way, prophets, by their very nature, cannot be at the center of any social structure. Rather, they are on the edge of the inside. They cannot be fully insiders, but they cannot throw rocks from the outside either. They must be educated inside the system, knowing and living the rules before they can critique what is not essential or not so important. Now, prophets, out of a deep sense of responsibility, call the tradition in which they are rooted in toward greater justice and inclusion. Old Testament scholar, his name is Walter Brueggemann. Many of you know this man. If you read his work, uh, Dan refers to him quite a bit in this episode. He describes this process as providing a word from elsewhere or as having this prophetic imagination. Prophets imagine their contemporary world differently according to that old tradition. So it's tradition and imagination according to Brueggemann. This prophetic imagination offers an alternative arrangement of society, one that liberates from the coercive social and economic structures of empire. Out of that deep sense of responsibility, the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah poetically describes this word from elsewhere as an intense fire trapped in the bones that can't be contained. That's from Jeremiah 29. Now, for Brueggemann, the prophetic voice of every age is poetic. If you've ever read, heard, or written a poem, you know very well that the experience of poetry describing the indescribable, that which cannot be put into prose, can be put into poetry. Perhaps this is the reason that we have so many poems about love. In her interview with Brueggemann, Krista Tippett describes the prophet's use of language as key to the power of the prophet. However, in the most creative prophetic voices cannot escape the consequences of speaking truth to power. In an NPR interview on his book, Black Prophetic Fire, Dr. Cornell West reminds us that, quote, a prophetic person tells the truth, exposes lies, bears witness, and then usually is pushed to the margins or shot dead. This is certainly true of contemporary prophetic voices such as Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and Dorothy Day, to name just a few. So, whether we look at ancient Hebrew prophets or contemporary prophetic voices, we find that under the doom and gloom of their poetic imagery lies a hopeful vision of a better world, aimed at this greater justice, inclusion, and liberation. That's the hope. May their vision be our vision, one that generates new social possibilities through revolutionary thought and action. Thank you, Dan, for these notes. If you enjoy this episode or like any of our episodes, please go to Twitter, 
We have a Twitter handle. It's brew underscore theology. We also have Facebook and Instagram at brew theology. Share that online. Go to iTunes, rate it, review it, share it with your friends. Also, brewtheology.org. You can find out different ways in which you can partner and sponsor with us. There is a new group coming up. That's right, in October. Jacksonville, Jacksonville, Florida. They are going to be brewing some theology here in the coming months. And we've also got one in Canton, Ohio, Northwest Metro, along with Greeley and the Jersey Boys. All right, gang, talk to you soon. Don't forget to share the brew. Am I right? Yep. Okay, here we are again in the Madison House talking about prophecy. Dan the Man Rosado here wrote the topic, Prophecy, Doom, Gloom, and Tongues of Fire. We have Erica, Janelle, Ben, and I'm Ryan. Here's some conversational guidelines before we get going. No soapboxes allowed, so no one person or viewpoint gets the last word. Respect all others and their viewpoints. Extend courtesy by listening well. And everything's up for discussion, so don't be a jerk. You can use any adjective you want there. And so, Dan, these are good notes. This was fun. I think Dan should introduce himself first. We're going to do some intros, background, spiritual pedigree, where you are now. And what are you drinking tonight? So tonight I'm drinking, I don't even know what the brewery was, but it's some kind of, it said it was a sour IPA, which I've never had. It was in a can. Assiduous brewery? That's it. Canned out of Crazy Mountain. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. That's it. Um, The IPA thing threw me off. I didn't want to drink an IPA, especially not a sour one, but it's a, it's a drinkable sour for sure. Um, so I grew up Pentecostal, um, kind of more on the fundamentalist side of evangelicalism. And it wasn't until college that I started exploring my faith, my Christian faith. And that led me a couple of different paths. Um, some of them were overlapping and now I still consider myself a Christian, but I'm I guess more open in that regard and not so tied to labels, which I always hate that. I'm like, you you, you, t- you probably do have a label. I'm sorry, Baird, if you're listening. Baird hates labels for some reason. He's like, oh, the label question. But um, <laughs> yep, that's, that's pretty much where I am. And this topic was of interest because of uh, our current political context and also... Um, I think the idea of prophecies used colloquially, um, and I wanted to explore that a little bit more. And somebody told me that it was supposed to be the end of the world again, like a couple of days ago. I, I found that out on Thursday. Was it the end of Saturday? Yeah, but it's the beginning of the end. Again? Yeah. Okay. Once you know you're wrong, you got to say, well, I didn't really mean that. I meant the beginning. And now the tribulation is going to happen. Didn't you know? Yeah, I don't know who said it. That's why you have this dislocated shoulder because you're suffering right now. Oh, yeah. Recovering from a dislocated shoulder. Mm -hmm. No one prophesied that, so. (laughs) All right, so I'm Ryan, and I'm uh, old school Southern Baptist state of Texas evangelical. Deconstructed that throughout the years, gleaned from the Anabaptist, the United Methodist, the Pentecostal tradition as well, and the Jewish part of our faith. So I'm an evolving and open tent Anabaptist method, Eucostal follower of Jesus. And this, yeah, this brew theology gathering, this group that we've kind of created here in Denver has helped me, I think, love people better across the labels. I don't mind labels as long as you can define them and then have like a really long conversation about that label, which we don't have tonight. So don't, don't judge us for our labels, listeners.
Uh, I'm Ben. I'm drinking a Belgian-style IPA, which is good. It's called a It's it, This Machine. Do you know what that's a reference to? This Machine Kills Fascists. Yes. Yep. Woody Guthrie's guitar. Said that's, that. that's a pretty good multi-IPA, too. It is good. Yeah. Um, I grew up kind of mainline and then formed my faith in college and became kind of conservative evangelical. We should just have like a boilerplate. I wasn't evangelical <laughs> phrase that you could say. And then deconstructed that over the past three years. Um, don't know what to call myself. If there is a label, I'm not against labels, but I don't know what to use. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm interested in being constructive now. Uh, hi, this is Janelle, and I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene and left that tradition a few years ago And as we moved to the West. Um, in that process, I would say now I'm a progressive Christian. I'm pretty happy with that label, actually, um, as it emphasizes often uh, work towards social justice and the social gospel, which I think is a critical way that we live out what Jesus called us to do. Um, and tonight I just want to give out a shout out to Nina, who's a good friend of ours, who's uh, suffering, and uh, I want you to know we're praying for you, and if any of you out there send good vibes or prayer, pray, uh, please do that for Nina and her family right now. I'm Erica, and I would describe myself as a recovering evangelical, and I think there's a lot of recovery uh, that I've needed and still need. Um, I also grew up Pentecostal, and uh, I'm still trying to figure out what what to make of that kind of upbringing. So I was going to fundamental Baptist schools at the time, and uh, so that was kind of a weird combination. I started deconstructing probably in college and got really comfortable with it about two years ago. And um, now I'm leaning more towards the contemplative Christianity walk, I guess. I still use the word walk, which I feel like is still very Christianese. Um, and uh, I'm just trying to fight cynicism. That's my biggest thing right now is trying to find life without without cynicism. Good right. luck. Walk better than belief. I'm cool with the walking part. Follow me. You Follow know? me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I will make you fishers of men Human. and women. Humankind. Yeah. All right. So we specifically in this group are all labeled Christians. That's our background. And in this topic, as Dan presented in the notes, this is since this is his background, that's primarily the context from which this conversation will stem. However, I think that this has a lot to do with things outside of Christianity because we still live in a very Judeo-Christian world in 21st century with a lot of different labels. When you say Christian, what do you mean by that? So when it comes to prophecy, before we get into the stuff that Dan talked about in the notes, what was your background? Dan said he grew up Pentecostal, so that gives us a little bit of an idea, but I'd love to hear just more of your your background, your history, what you thought of the word prophecy before we get specifically into these notes tonight. And I know this is the vulnerable time, but it's a good icebreaker to get us going. Yeah, for me, prophecy um, was presented as a gift of the Spirit, which in the Pentecostal world is very important, these gifts, manifestations of of um, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, if you will. And it usually centered around the ability to speak something that was hidden. 
is kind of the best way that I would put it. Um, when it came in, when it, within the context of church, it wasn't so much people telling the future or something like that, but more kind of maybe re- revealing something about a person or a situation that would be non-obvious. Um, I think I, I said this in our in our group last week that it, it, in general with prayer too, people will say things with their eyes closed and in the mode of prayer that they wouldn't say face-to-face. So in that context, like if somebody's praying for you, they could kind of express, you know, I see this potential, you know, in your life or whatever. And that would be kind of around the, it would be labeled as, as a gift of prophecy. Others uh, saw it as teaching, you know, that the gift of teaching and prophecy kind of overlapped. Um, and then there was definitely like the weirder aspects of it. So that's, that's as positive as I can speak to it coming from that background. Um, but I could, I definitely saw it used in coercive ways, um, speaking things into people that, you know, let's say that the church needed a youth pastor and they'd go up to somebody and say, Oh, the Lord told me that you need to do this. So it was definitely misused in that sense. And then, um, I think for me personally, I didn't, I wasn't really interested in the prophetic until after nine 11 and I went all crazy. <laughs> I was in middle school. So, you know, we all bunch of middle school kids, like digging through the Bible, through the prophets and finding all these like things that are loosely related to what had happened on, on that morning. And it was kind of a game for us, like a puzzle. So that's what like the prophetic turned into. And you, you had to have gotten that from somewhere, right? Did oh, oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. We were encouraged to do stuff like that. You know, I was convinced we were in end times or whatever, and it all made sense. And yeah. And were we or no? Wasn't end times? Time will tell. Okay. It's already been seven years since then, guys. Unless seven years means 17. seven. 17. More yeah, than it that. could be. 17? <laughs> no, it's well, 16 Wait. years. Yeah, it's been 16, 16 years, man. Years. Yeah, not seven years. 16 okay. years. Uh, no. Right? No, I know, but I'm saying seven-year tribulation. Okay, no, so seven years, biblically, the seven-year tribulation. So we've clearly missed that boat. Unless Sorry. seven right. years means something else. <laughs> Unless it's seven times 70 or 70 times seven, and then it may never end. Just keep scaling. Yeah, Trump I just may thought be you were missing forever. a decade. Mm. I, I, I get it now. It's good. If there are more Texans here, it would have gone over well. It was a really good tribulation joke. <laughs> I just, it was lost on me. Oh, come on, you Bible code people. <laughs> Bible code. There's a oh, yeah. yeah, there's a code oh, yeah. in the Bible. The that Omega maps code, out the, the Bible code, the Those Bible code. Scary movies, but you know, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't until very, very recently, maybe the last five or six years ago, that I started, you know, thinking about what it means to to be prophetic or what the role of the prophet was. It's crazy how in in all my years of going to church, at least twice a week, I didn't come out with with the idea that. The prophets um, in, in the Hebrew scriptures were presented as those that were advocating for what we now would call social justice. Like that was completely yep. not on the radar. So it's interesting because Dan and I, our traditions actually stem out of the same uh, re- kind of renewal, revival at the turn of the 20th century. And so his 
background comes out of the Pentecostal side and Nazarenes kind of rebelled directly against that prophetic voice, speaking in tongues, those kind of things, and deemed that not something that was uh, relevant to the, the world we live in. So a huge part of my, I mean, we don't really talk about prophecy at all. Um, not in any sort of supernatural sense. Um, maybe we would refer to Old Testament prophets, but it wasn't, it wasn't an active prophecy. There was no prophesying over anyone. That, I mean, that just was not even present. Um, now, I did, as I was getting older and going towards ministry, um, get into this idea is that um, sometimes preachers p play the prophetic role, and that was often a label that was given to me because I was often kind of on the edge of things, and I often noticed injustice. But I really, I mean, kind of like what you just said, Dan, I had no uh, no context for what any of that meant at that point. I knew that was a word that was there, but I didn't understand, like, what, what that even meant when it was said. Um, and so my tradition really ignored a lot of this for a long time but we still i mean there was still the influence of left behind and some of that apocalyptic stuff i mean so that was in there but it was never given any like real weight i guess i wonder if the difference between like the left behind series which carried a lot of weight in evangelical circles and still probably does within some is that that is those are based on words from the first century according to their framework of how those words were interpreted versus a, the gifts of prophecy are very current and modern. Yeah. So that's, that's scarier. That's like, okay, I can, I can agree with you if it's in the Bible, but now you're 2000 years later. So don't give me a prophetic word. That's right. Crazy talk. Yep. I mean, Cause some coming from a Southern Baptist tradition, pro probably similar to the Nazarenes in that regard that we didn't toy around with prophetic gifts very much. It, if there were any, it was the gift of the preacher, but it wasn't, like, everybody come forward and I have a word for you. Even, I would even go for, so far as to say sometimes we would relate prophecy to, like, witchcraft. I mean, maybe not, like, one-to-one, -one, but just, like, if you're claiming to know the future, that's not something that comes from God. You're messing around with something you shouldn't mess around with. Right. Yeah, like, my background is similar, just in more middle-of-the-road, like, non-denominational evangelical. So there's no official category or title of prophet or prophecy. And definitely you'd get weirded out if someone said, like, there's going to be a famine or whatever. But, which I remember someone saying to me, I was like, you're weird, get away. Like that extreme mode, we definitely, is definitely discouraged. And I think those type of evangelicals feel good about that. Like, we're not the crazy Christians. Yep. Really. Um but I would still say, like, there was still formally, like, it's it still existed. You just didn't call it prophecy. Like, there's a certain way of speaking where you you give your words more weight over somebody. Um, so, if like I said it to you last week, like, if I'm like, hey man, you're you're really good at leading podcasts. Like in evangelical circles, you know you're supposed to turn on a little switch that says like. I think God might be speaking to me through mm -hmm. that. And then you're going to spend your whole 20s trying to pursue podcasts. Like, because, and I feel like, especially at that age, like, you're, you want to hear from somebody and give it special weight. So there's still this form of, 
prophecy and like yeah just pastors and preachers like why else would there be just a couple key voices for evangelicals like how come you can only read books by tim keller like because he has a special voice or yeah in my tradition that was probably tied into the call that like you had to have this call to go into ministry or missions or whatever and yeah that's how it was used was prophetically i guess uh, in my background especially in youth group <laughs> we had so many people prophesy over us probably all of us that we were going to speak in front of thousands and thousands of people all over the world and lead thousands and thousands to Christ and be world changers. And it's like when that song history maker was really big. And, um, so my friends and I who were really into it and like really serious about God believed that we were going to be celebrity Christians, you know, <laughs> that we were going to change the world and that, but that the world would know our names and we would go down in history and just have this kind of, um, purpose that was very public. And um, I actually read an article about a year ago about that culture and how a lot of those kids now are in their 30s and are like struggling with depression over that specific thing because they really believed um, with all of their hearts that they were going to make it big in missions or even, you know, evangelism or something. And a lot of us, I, I did, I did um, mission work in Africa for over half a year. And a lot of my other friends, you know, it just felt like this crazy adventure that was going to turn into this super public career. And for most of us, that didn't happen. And for the people that it did happen to, it's still you know, a little bit of a letdown because it's, it's a lot of image and, you know, the substance there is, it may be questionable. So that's something that I've really had to reckon with in my, in my twenties is that it became a huge part of my identity. Yeah. Did you guys ever have anybody like, so you have the one word, like, so let's say it's like the, the, the lead pastor or the lead prophet, whomever that is in any kind of Christian context, but then it's the, you have to have three voices, three words of affirmation, confirmation to make it happen. No? No, I never heard that. And that was a little bit more helpful for me when I kind of started to get into more of the Pentecostal gleanings throughout my uh, my spiritual journey. And I, and I don't, I don't want to say this is the Vineyard Church, because if you're listening right now and you're in a Vineyard Church, you're like, Ryan, you're so wrong. I think it was the Vineyard Church where I learned this and how it was, because that was more of an intellectual, like you had the Tim Kellers on one side, like that was a big part of it too, that kind of... Not going to go far into the Brian McLaren world, but Tim Keller is sort of maybe some N.T. right. But you're also going to have some prophetic gifts, and I have a word for you, and possibly you're going to be leading this huge millennial, you know, big guru thing in Africa. But it was always balanced with knowledge, and it was balanced with scripture, and it was balanced with the third voice. So nobody else had that ever? Mm-mm. At least it gave it a little bit more weight than just the one person. So I appreciated that. We had to have... Okay, so the youth group thing was a little more like, you're going to be world changers, which is not super weird, but also was a huge letdown when it didn't happen. Earlier on, kind of like Dan was saying, in the really Pentecostal world, was literal speaking in tongues in the church service, not only as a personal, um, I don't know, communication with God, but also as... um, like the room would get really quiet and one person would just stand up and start speaking in tongues. And then the room would get really awkwardly quiet right after that. And somebody else usually would stand up 
and say something to the effect of the Lord says and say something, you know, and usually it was something like, I love you. I haven't forgotten about you. I see you. I say, I hear your prayers that you can't really go that wrong on. And every once in a while, though, it was kind of off in left field, you know, because like Dan was saying earlier, you can use that to say something like someone in this congregation is having an affair <laughs> and things like that would happen and it would get really abused. And then and people 40% would, of the men in the room put their heads down. <laughs> people would look at each other like, oh, my gosh, they know. And uh, so actually that happened to my mom where um, uh, there was a supposed prophet at this church she was at and they pointed at her. And um, talked about her doing things in secret, and 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 my dad, like for, the, for like weeks, was like, "What are you hiding from me?" And it was super abusive, and that stuff kind of ran rampant in churches like that. But it was still like there still had to be a interpretation or some kind of confirmation. Janelle's looking at me like I'm crazy. This is why. No, I need, I'm I'm wanting to hurt people in your church that allow that. This is why I need therapy, that. Janelle. This is this is why I pay for therapy. I, I mean, I, that kind of <laughs> stuff is where. I mean, we don't have to rabbit trail completely, but I'm sure it'll come up again. Like this stuff can be so abusive because when you give one person the voice to say that this is where your life is going, that is a level of power and control that is abusive. And we just need to be honest about that. And I think that that's something that people get really squeamish when you say that about some of this, but (laughs) calling out someone in public about having an affair that you know nothing about and that isn't even real, that is abuse. Yes. That, just straight up. And the the leaders that allow that and the people that do it should be, in my opinion, they should be kicked out and, and it Paul, should be I think done. Paul talks about how to handle these things anyway, not well, in public settings too. Right, exactly. Like if you know something, then you go to the person and then you bring somebody else and it's like, it's a very orderly process. It's not... This sounds chaotically this bullshit. Is chaotic but if you and mystify awful. it, that's that's demystifying right. the process. If you mystify it, it's harder to question. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we want to transition into politics right now, but I will at least say with that, a lot of really good people that I know who are smart in every other sense of, of the world, and they're very functional, they can pay their bills, they've raised decent children, but they um, are stuck in this mysticism of... Like this mystification of spiritualization around politics and it has caused them to give up common sense because of a prophetic, what they believe is a prophetic voice. And if someone that they have trusted for years tells them, I know this makes no sense to you, but, and they use scripture saying, but God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and look what God did with King David you know, to, to justify something that in any other way, if it wasn't spiritualized, would never be justified. And um, and also to say you cannot question this because it comes from a prophet. This comes from God. There's a there's a there's a mystical nature around it and you have to accept it. And so many people I know have said, well, I really had a problem with with this at first because it it kind of went against my sensibilities. But now that this prophet that I really trust or this leader that I really trust has explained to me why this is God's will, now I'm okay with it. And I know how I should vote or, or who I should support. And that to me, Janelle, is like taking that abuse to the nth degree. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, so you have a king named King David and he committed some pretty big sins, but he was a man after God's own heart. So now you have someone like 45 who's come into office and said, well, hey, you know, he's grabbed a few pussies here and there, but uh, hey, God's going to use him just like he did with King Cyrus, by the way, back in the day. All right. Is that the transition we wanted? Are we going to talk politics now?
Yeah. Let's do it. So this kind of ties into the, a question that came up, and I purposefully avoided putting that in there. <laughs> um, we love you, Dan. The question, the question was like, what makes a profit a profit, right? Um, and, and I, I try to hint at that, and I try to focus on the profit as one that calls specifically the Judeo-Christian tradition back into a, a place of, of, of rightness, of right conduct is kind of the way I look at it now. Uh, they would probably call it righteousness. Um, and, and usually that doom and gloom that we, that we read about from guys like Jeremiah is, you know, pointing out if we continue in this conduct, um, and this is where the political aspect comes because it's typically they're aligning or in bed with, you know, whoever's in power, um, who's, you know, doing the injustice on behalf of everybody else. You know, if we continue in, in this path, these are the consequences. And then it gets, you know, wrapped up in this poetic imagery. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a political dimension. But I had people ask me, well, what makes a profit a profit? And I don't know if we want to go over that right now, but. Well, I, I've been thinking a lot um, since um, Michelle talked to us and she quoted Micah 6 8, which is often, if you don't know, is used on a lot of like plaques and home goods and things to encourage Christians. But it comes out of one of the minor prophets and he says that we are to do justice. I'm going to mix this up. Do. Do justice, love, mercy, mercy walk humbly, and walk humbly or, with or our God. Kindness, yeah. And I think what's what keeps sticking with me there is, and I think what's scary about the world that we're in right now is that um, your progressive Christians feel like we're the ones that are actually doing that, and the conservative evangelicals feel like they can justify that as well. And Micah the prophet would look at that and be going, "You're nuts." Like when we are oppressing people, when we are allowing people to be killed in the streets, when we are um, making excuses for someone that doesn't understand faithfulness in life or in marriage or in conduct of the office that they hold, that is exactly who the prophets would speak against. And, and the fact that we have a whole section of our country that f finds a way to justify all that terrifies me. Because we've, we've left logic behind. Um, and when us progressives, us evil progressives, stand up and say we are to do justice and love our neighbor with mercy and walk humbly in the pattern of Jesus, and we're told that we're misunderstanding because we're kneeling at the national anthem or we're marching against what happened in Charlottesville, I don't know how you have a conversation in that context anymore when I can't even talk to you about it. So does the prophetic word get snuffed out always? So in this context, for sure, you have like all the things that you were saying, I and mean, that's what's happening in our country. And we, we can all add some commentary to that as well. Prophets are not, they're not loved in their hometown. Jesus wasn't. You've got Jeremiah and he was locked in a cistern. And these, some of these guys like really had some uh, crazy acts of, like, uh, who, who's the dude? Was it um, Ezekiel that lit his shit on fire and ran around naked? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so these are people who clearly are, they're not, they're not fitting in with, with, with their people, but they're doing things and saying things that are getting people to wake up. These are protests mm -hmm. making people, oh, I can't believe he's 
you know, running around naked right now. It's performance art. Yeah. Is what it is. If you've ever seen anything like that. But is is it only going to be prophetic when the person's dead and when that stage in history is gone, when we look back in hindsight? Because in the moment, you just think it's a crazy person. Well, I but I think we know that actually it's it's not just seen in hindsight, whether it's followed now or in hindsight is the clear thing. I mean, we can look at um, Bonhoeffer, who was who was being prophetic in World War II and saying, we must act. We must be the ones that stand up. And people didn't listen. And we look back and go, okay, we can't let this happen again. We can't do this, so we must cry out. And so we cry out, and people are refusing to listen. And I don't think that means that the prophetic voice gets snuffed out. See, and this is where you would really, really irritate to people like, but the power of evil to to try to hide the good is is strong and it's easy. It's easy to get on board and not think and make up excuses and and declare I'm not racist. I would never act racially racist against somebody um, when you're actively doing it in front of somebody like um I don't know. It's something that I personally am really wrestling with. Like, what does it mean to continue to speak uh, in this environment? And and a lot of people that come from this prophecy tradition would say, oh, you're overreacting. It's not really that bad. Well, but it is. The empire is now saying that if you object to what's going on, that you should lose your job. Um, that's a big deal, especially... Uh, Dan was great in quoting Brueggemann here and looking at, at prophecy from his from that perspective. And, and when we start aligning ourselves with empire, um, that's when things get really bad. Yeah, so if we're going to talk about empire right now, currently as, I don't know when this podcast is going to be released, but just two days ago, is it Tuesday? So Sunday and then even Monday, you had you know the NFL, which we're talking about here, how it, a lot of players back to Kaepernick 2016 who took a knee and then had Trump who tweeted out like, or he didn't tweet it. He actually said it in Alabama in some speech where these sons of bitches should, you know, they should get fired and lose their jobs if they take a knee. So then of course these teams decided to create their own protest. And, and, they, and, and that's totally in line with, um, so, so Walter Brueggemann, uh, I might be misunderstanding him a little bit. Um, Maybe someday we'll have him on the podcast. He's getting old, so we better hurry up. That'd be but, awesome. But um, he he talks about empire, and he also uses the word totalism. And he says that totalism, what it does is that it silences, right? So the the prophetic is a voice. Part of that is um, is is saying what needs to be said or saying what can't be said under totalism. And totalism is, you know, this idea that um, it's like an all-encompassing power that is convinced that it's it's the best thing that it's ever happened, and and it can't get any better. And to me, that's America in its current context or in its current manifestation. And I don't think that's going to change. But um, what I saw in Trump's comment was a way of silencing something that is either one a prophetic voice or two, has potential to become a prophetic voice. I mean, if we're talking about NFL players, you know, embodying the message of Black Lives Matter, that that phrase right there is prophetic. 
and it's saying what cannot be said, you know, whereas totalism has no problem, has no, no limitation of how many people it incarcerates, how many people it, um, subjugates to poverty, how many people it deports, how, you know, all these things to say that any of those groups matter is a big thing. And that's why I would label it prophetic. So, um, the antithesis of that would be to silence. And that's what he, we, what he does. And it's, and it's somewhat clever because, you know, the, the protest itself, you know, starting with Kaepernick one, it happened under the Obama administration and it was, you know, a symbolic gesture of, Hey, unarmed black men should not be dying at this rate or at all. Right. Um, but then Trump flipped it and made it about nationalism. They're disrespecting our troops, our flag, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's like the power of empire or totalism or whatever to silence. And that's where I struggle with, you know, both sides are trying to be prophetic in some way, right? Where you have maybe more progressive, for lack of better words, because I think it transcends the conservative liberal because there are conservatives who are against Trump. You know, I want to give them credit and Michelle is potentially one of them. And, um, that's where it gets frustrating is, is this misunderstanding of what it means to be prophetic. And again, that's just my opinion, but I think it's superior. (laughs) That's why I have it. (laughs) But I think Erica wants to say something. Um, yeah, it's just what you were saying made me think um it makes it's even more dangerous when the country that is in totalism i don't know what the right word is around that but um is convinced that that they are martyrs and victims and so we have we have the empire and the oppressors and the ones who are in power convinced when they look at the bible that they're the jews you know, that they're the ones who are being occupied and they're the ones who are in exile and they're the ones who are being oppressed. So when the person who has, the people who have the most power are convinced that they are martyrs and victims and oppressed, I don't know that there's a more dangerous group of people um, because they've taken this narrative and co-opted it for themselves. And so you have Christians who are progressive Christians and conservative Christians. And that's just to simplify it way down. I know there's a lot more than that, but in, in this context that we're in now, like Janelle was just saying, we see the systematic oppression. We see the, the murdering of unarmed black, black men and the treatment of people of color. And once, once you see it, once I started seeing it, I can't unsee it. And I didn't see it when I was younger and now it's all I see. And it's so overwhelming. And so to have a conversation with someone from, that who I grew up with and they can't even admit or, or they don't even believe that it's real. And not only did not believe that those things are real, but they believe that they are oppressed. There's no point of conversation there. Like we can't, and I was in debate in college and we defined our terms so we could at least, we were going to, yeah, we were going to um, debate and each have a different side, but we at least agreed on what we were talking about. <laughs> and it seems like, a lot of a lot of times I've given up on those conversations because we can't even agree on what we're talking about that or that things are even real. And that's been incredibly discouraging. 
Yeah, I've had that thought a lot. I was a debater as well. And I mean, you, you can honestly spend at least half a debate round arguing about definitions because, because that's how important they are when you're having a debate about either values or policy. You need to know what you're talking about. And I do think that's a huge part of the problem right now is that we're not defining our terms and we're not laying it all on the table about what does it mean when I say, um, you know oppression or what does it mean when i say racism um for some for more liberal people it means both conscious and unconscious racism for conservative people it tends to mean just overt actions well those aren't the same definition (laughs) so we need to be honest about what our definitions are and then talk about how do we get to a place where we can have a conversation where our definitions match and then also um, in one tradition of more um, conservative colleges that do debate um, they do debate through a value. So it is a policy debate, but it's through a value of, say, um, uh, the value of human life or of liberty or justice. And I think that part of what's going on too there is that we're not always identifying each other's values of like, well, what is the lens through which I'm having this argument? And if those lenses aren't aligned, we're not going to be able to have that conversation either. And so, yeah, how do we go about like defining our terms better, making sure we're looking at it through similar lenses so we're actually having a conversation about the same thing? Um, I think those are big challenges that we're facing. Thank you guys for listening to part one on Prophecy. Part two, we're going to get very political to say the least. If you like this episode, Caroline has a few words for you. Don't forget to share the brew. Share that brew. Peace out.